Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. And it's a very great pleasure to welcome you to Miles Bernier's second Harrison lecture in philosophy, Anger and Revenge. Yesterday evening, in introducing our speaker, Barry Stroud commented on Professor Bernier's remarkable range in classics and philosophy, or philosophy and classics. The lecture we were able to hear on ancient freedoms was a splendid example of his ability to engage simultaneously with antiquity and modernity. It was a perfect paradigm of Miles' special ability to show us the birth of salient ideas and forcing us to recognize conceptual peculiarities in those ideas at their origin that their legacy very often obscures. So we're very much looking forward to the next installment of his archaeology of feeling. The philosophy of Greco-Roman antiquity has always been a lively field, but it's extremely so at present. And there are two principal reasons why that is so. The first is simply the quality of what's there, which includes not only the giants, Plato and Aristotle, but also a thousand years of magnificently creative thought, much of which, though for long neglected in modern scholarship, is being restored to light today. And those of you who were here yesterday will recall the importance of the cynics and the stoics in Professor Bernier's paper, and also the use he made of the great commentator on Aristotle, Alexander of Aphrodisias. The second reason for the vitality of ancient philosophy is the quality of the scholars and students it has attracted. And among them, of course, our speaker has made an especially notable contribution. Not only, though very much, by the standard of excellence he set in his writings, but also by his genius as a teacher, as a promoter of the subject all over the place, and as a great discussant. In these respects, Miles is the heir of Gregory Vlastos, whom we miss so much, who was our Harrison lecturer in 1984, when I also had the privilege of introducing him. In the introduction of Vlastos's first Socrates book, Miles edited the second, Vlastos acknowledges the great benefit he had from discussions with Miles Bernier, saying, he has that rare gift of seeing what you're driving at before you've got there yourself and helping you to complete your own thought without butting in. And that is so true. 30 years ago, almost to the day, 
I became Miles' colleague at University College London. The college included at that moment Richard Volheim, Bernard Williams, Hans Sluger as well. But that's by the way. Though if Miles would like to rejoin us all here, he would get quite a welcome. I particularly cherish the memory of evening after evening when he and I would tussle over the interpretation of Parmenides. Miles, as is his wont, had a large unpublished manuscript on Parmenides, which seemed to me far the best thing ever written on that obscure thinker. From every discussion with him, I returned home exhilarated, excited by his originality and tenacious grasp of detail, and grateful for what he'd helped me to say that I'd only been dimly aware of seeing. So it's a very special pleasure for me to introduce Miles Bernier to this Berkeley audience. I've no idea what he's going to say about anger and revenge, but I can guarantee that it will be a riveting lecture. So please welcome Miles. As yesterday, I shall uh, refer you to text one, text two, and the like as we go through. Uh, the opening page from the Times of 1986 is partly for your entertainment, but I will be referring to it later. Anger is the first word of Western literature. Sing, goddess, the wrath of Achilles is the opening prayer of Homer's Iliad. But in the original Greek, menin aedithia, the word menin, wrath or anger, comes first in the place of emphasis. The anger of Achilles is the central theme of our civilization's first and most powerful epic. Let me remind you of the story. Achilles is wrathful because Agamemnon, leader of the Greek army besieging Troy, has grabbed his girl, the girl he won as a prize for valor in the fighting. Achilles is offended by this insult to his dignity and honor. He goes on strike, refusing to fight and withdrawing the troops under his command from participation in the Greek effort. The result is near disaster for the Greeks. Deprived of their best fighter, they start to lose. It is only when they are pushed right back to their ships, one of which the Trojans set ablaze, that Achilles relents and allows his beloved friend Patroclus to rejoin the Greek army to help drive the Trojans off the beaches. And it is only when Patroclus himself is killed that Achilles takes up arms again to avenge his death by slaughtering Hector and dragging his body three times around the walls of Troy. This, you may say, is only a story. True, but it is a story which had effects. Being the very core of the core curriculum in both Greek and Roman education, it had a formative influence on the thoughts and feelings of real people in later ages, and thereby on their conduct. When Alexander the Great besieged Gaza in 332 BC, he dragged the enemy commander Betis behind his chariot while still alive in a deliberate attempt to imitate and outdo the behavior of Achilles. For Alexander, and for many other persons of less importance, Achilles was a role model 
of enormous power. The way he's shown behaving in the Iliad served as a model, albeit a debatable model, of how a hero, a real man, behaves. It's no accident that when Plato, in the second and third books of the Republic, produces a string of quotations from Homer to explain why in the ideal city the poets will not be allowed their traditional role in the education of the young, the bulk of the quotations are spoken by or concern Achilles. Moreover, if you take the elements of the story of Achilles, insult to a man's honor, and I use the masculine deliberately, consequent pain and upset in the man slighted, his desire to get back at and hurt the one who insulted him, and the pleasure in revenge, even when it is revenge of appalling savagery. If you take all these and reassemble them in an abstract formula, you have Aristotle's definition of anger in text one, which is my first reference. Let us then define anger as a longing accompanied by pain for a real or apparent revenge, for a real or apparent slight, affecting a man himself or one of his, when such a slight is undeserved. If this definition is correct, the angry man must always be angry with a particular individual, for instance with Cleon, not with a man as such, and be angry because this individual has done or was on the point of doing something against him or one of his. And lastly, Anger is always accompanied by a certain pleasure due to the hope of revenge to come. Wherefore, it has been well said of anger that far sweeter than dripping honey down the throat it spreads in men's hearts. The Iliad story of the wrath of Achilles is a concrete enactment of the thing that Aristotle specifies in abstract terms. Aristotle is well aware of this, of course, a paragraph later, he cites the story of Achilles as his first illustrative example, and Achilles is already the speaker of the verses at the end of text one, where he's looking back in sorrowful retrospect on his anger and its consequences. The wrath of Achilles is the paradigm case of anger for ancient Greek culture. That's why it features so prominently in this section of Aristotle's rhetoric, the second book of which contains a course of instruction to give students of public speaking some worldly knowledge about the emotions. It is no accident that this second book of the rhetoric was in fact the one work of Aristotle's that John Locke thought essential reading for a young gentleman in the 17th century when the power of speech was still an important asset in public life. But it's clear from the Homeric story that there are questions to ask about the morality and value of anger as Aristotle defines it. Achilles is a hero, a model of courage and sincerity, but his anger brought awful consequences both for the Greeks and for the Trojans. Is anger a good thing? Would we all be better off without it? In antiquity, these questions were the subject of a debate in which all the different schools of philosophy took part. The only thing remotely like it in modern philosophy is a debate that nearly got going about whether the world would be better off without jealousy. There was a lot of talk in the 1960s and 70s about jealousy being incompatible with non-possessive, non-exploitative sexual relations. An interesting philosophical treatment of the question by Dan Farrell appeared belatedly in the Philosophical Review for 1980. But other philosophers failed to respond. 
So, regrettably, there's no real modern parallel for the debate I want to describe, even though many of the issues that arise about anger are equally interesting and equally worth discussing in connection with jealousy, not to mention certain other emotions that we may not be altogether comfortable with. There were two main answers to the question, what to say about anger. Most philosophers held that anger neither could nor should be eradicated entirely. It is both an intrinsic part of human nature and an asset to society when there's fighting to be done. The solution, therefore, is to moderate anger so as to avoid the awful excesses of Achilles or, Ang or Alexander and train people to be angry on the right occasions only to a moderate and appropriate degree. The rival answer, advocated by the Stoic school of philosophy, was that anger could and should be eradicated altogether. Of these two answers and the debate between them, more shortly. It's the scale of the debate I would emphasize first. There were an awful lot of books on anger. We are lucky enough to possess three of them. We have one by Plutarch, representing the Platonic Aristotelian view that reason should moderate and control the passion. Another by Philodemus, which survived on papyrus under the ashes of the volcano at Herculaneum near Pompeii, puts the case for the Epicurean view that some anger is natural and unavoidable. Not even the ideal sage will remain indifferent when someone deliberately stamps on his foot. All the same, this sage's response will be very restrained when compared with that of a non-Epicurean like you or me. Since he will not care about the other person's malevolence, only about the actual physical pain and the risk of damage to his means of locomotion. The third surviving book on anger is the day era of the Stoic philosopher Seneca, favoring the total eradication of anger, a work which was read and admired for as long as European intellectuals were brought up to learn Latin. In addition, there's an extensive account of anger therapy in the writings of the great Dr. Galen. But we know the authors and titles of many other works on anger which have not survived. Had there been such a thing in antiquity as your station bookstore, in place of books on how to keep fit or how to improve your sex life, what you would have found is books on how to control your temper. Evidently, anger was a subject of intense concern. A story from Seneca will show us why. There was Gnaeus Piso, writes Seneca, whom I remember, a man free from many vices but misguided, in that he mistook inflexibility for firmness. Once when he was angry, he ordered the execution of a soldier who had returned from leave of absence without his comrade, on the ground that if the man did not produce his companion, he had killed him. And when the soldier asked for a little time to institute a search, the request was refused. The condemned man was led outside the rampart, and as he was in the act of presenting his neck, there suddenly appeared the very comrade who was supposed to have been murdered. Hereupon the centurion, in charge of the execution, bade the guardsman sheath his sword and led the condemned man back to Piso in order to free Piso from blame, for fortune had freed the soldier. A huge crowd amid great rejoicing in the camp escorted the two comrades locked in each other's arms. Piso mounted the tribunal in a rage and ordered both soldiers to be led to execution, the one who had done no murder and the one who had escaped it. Could anything have been more unjust than this? Two were dying because one had been proved innocent. But Piso added also a third, 
for he ordered the centurion who brought back the condemned man to be executed as well. On account of the innocence of one man, three were appointed to die in the selfsame place. How clever is anger in devising excuses for its madness. You, it says, I ordered to be executed because you were condemned. You, because you were the cause of your comrade's condemnation. You, because you did not obey your commander when you were ordered to kill. It thought out three charges because it had grounds for none. In our world, the state has a monopoly on violence, at least officially. Under the Roman Empire, when Seneca was writing, an officer was entitled to execute his soldiers, the head of a household could execute his son or his slaves, and the governor of a province could execute the people he ruled. I quote Seneca again, only recently Volusus, governor of Asia under Augustus, beheaded 300 persons in one day, and as he strutted among the corpses with the proud air of one who'd done some glorious deed worth beholding, he cried out in Greek, what a kingly act. What would he have done if he had been a king? Thus, the consequences of anger could all too easily be lethal. Keep out of the way when daddy's in a bad mood, and woe betide the slave who drops his master's best glasses when the emperor has come round for dinner. When one of his slaves had broken a crystal cup, Vedius ordered him to be seized and doomed him to die, but in an extraordinary way. He ordered him to be thrown to the huge lampreys, which he kept in a fish pond. The lad slipped from his captors and fled to Caesar's fleet, feet, begging only that he might die some other way, anything but being eaten. Caesar, shocked by such an innovation in cruelty, ordered that the boy be pardoned, and besides, that all the crystal cups be broken before his eyes and the fish pond be filled up. This is a world in which a great number of people, more accurately, a great number of men, have power, imperium. And it's the combination of power and anger which causes such concern. As we can see from text two, which is a letter that Cicero wrote to his brother Quintus when the latter was governor of the Roman province of Asia, that's modern Turkey. Uh, he writes, he's been hearing from people in the province, and they say these letters, while they dwell upon your virtues, your integrity and your kindliness, they do make one reservation, and that's your irascibility. Now, not only does irascibility betray a capricious and feeble mind in private and everyday life, but there's nothing so repulsive, deforme, so ugly, so um, shameworthy as this intrusion ad summum imperium into supreme power of bad temper. I should be coming back to this letter later. The greater the power, of course, the worse the consequences of anger are going to be. Which brings me to anger as a cause of war, and in particular of civil war. For the poet Horace in text three, the damage caused by the wrath of Achilles is an emblem of his own experience of a civil war in which he fought on the losing side. The poem begins, at Rome I had the luck to be bred and taught how much Achilles' wrath had harmed the Greeks. In other words, he had a typical Roman education, read the Iliad at school, and then he went to Athens uh, and learnt to hunt for truth in the groves of Academe. In other words, he went and studied philosophy at Athens. But then a real civil war began. Real life confirmed the truth of earlier lessons and he was torn into a civil war on the wrong side. 
It was indeed a nightmare. And Horace is not the only ancient writer for whom the wrath of Achilles is the emblematic episode of dissension and particularly of civil dissension. In the Iliad, the nadia of Greek fortunes, the ultimate consequence of the wrath of Achilles, is the moment just before Achilles sends Patroclus to rejoin the Greek forces, when the Trojans drive the Greeks back to the sea and set fire to one of their ships. Homer introduces this episode with the words, tell Muse how far first fell upon the Greeks. In the Republic, Plato introduces the sad fact that the ideal city will eventually be torn apart by dissension and decline into democracy by rewriting the Homeric line so that Socrates praised the Muses to tell how dissension, stasis, first fell upon the city. And centuries later, at a key point in his metaphysics, Plotinus rewrote the line again, intending to echo both the Platonic and the Homeric contexts with the word time in place of Plato's dissension and Homer's fire. Plotinus means to suggest that the very existence of time, involving as it does soul disrupting the unitary now of eternity and distinguishing this now from that one, is a form, indeed it is the most fundamental form, of dissension and difference in the universe. Take Greek philosophy to ancient Rome, where Plotinus taught, and one product as a metaphysics capable of conceptualizing time itself in terms of civil war. Seneca makes the interesting claim that anger is the only passion that can at times possess a whole nation. No entire people has ever burned with love for a woman, no whole state has set its hope upon money or gain. Ambition is personal and seizes upon the individual, only fury is an affliction of a whole people. It looks as though he's going to develop this claim in terms of war between one whole people and another. And that is indeed how he starts off. But almost immediately he gets caught up in a description of civil war, in which the members of a single population are enraged with each other. Often in a single mass they rush into anger. Men and women, old men and boys, the gentry and the rabble, are all in full accord. And the united body, inflamed by a very few incendiary words, outdoes the incendiary himself. They fly forthwith to fire and sword and proclaim war against their neighbors, or, and here comes the transition, wage it against their countrymen. Whole houses are consumed, root and branch, and the man who but lately was held in high esteem and applauded for his eloquence receives now the anger of his following. Legions hurl their javelins upon their own commanders, all the commoners are at discord with the nobles, the Senate, the High Council of the State, without waiting to levy troops, without appointing a commander, chooses impromptu agents of its wrath, and hunting down its high-born victims throughout the houses of the city, takes punishment into its own hand. Embassies are outraged, the law of nations is broken, and unheard of madness sweeps the stake. state. Now there's a reason, I think, why it is civil war, rather than war in general, that writers focus on when trying to convince us of the awful consequences of anger. The reason is that no one wants to condemn war as such. The wrath of Achilles caused a damaging setback to the Greek effort to exact vengeance on Troy for the abduction of Helen. One may deplore the damage done by Achilles without deploring the Greek expedition against Troy. Indeed, the very idea of deploring the damage Achilles did to the Greek cause presupposes approval of that cause. 
Accordingly, if one does not condemn war as such, then either one must allow that in the appropriate circumstances, anger and the desire for vengeance can be an acceptable motive for external war, or one must find an alternative, non-angry motive, for those external wars that one thinks to be justified. This second option is mandatory for the Stoics, who believe that anger should be eradicated altogether. Hence, they need an account, which Seneca duly provides, of how you go to war and commit massacres without getting hit up about it. That leaves the first option for everyone else. And in fact, a statement by Cicero in text 4, which became a key text for the medieval theory of the just war, has it, it's the bit of Latin right at the bottom, um, Uh, and the, the bit of French I've underlined. Uh, but you don't need to read it. I'll tell you what it says. Uh, the statement has it that no war is just unless it is undertaken either to expel an invading enemy or for the sake of vengeance. Orcus kendi causa. This statement does not mention anger explicitly. Anger is implied, however, because everyone agrees that the, the desire for vengeance, ultio from the verbal kiskor, is anger. Indeed, it's what anger essentially is. In one set of words or another, this is common ground to all philosophical schools. Aristotle's definition has already given, been given. For comparison, text five contains the textbook definition of anger from a stoic source. The bit I've underlined, anger is a craving or desire to punish one who's thought to have done you an undeserved injury. The translations are misleading here. They make it look as if Aristotle in text one and the Stoics in text five are talking about two different things. Aristotle about the desire for vengeance, the Stoics about the desire to punish an offender. But the Greek word is the same in both cases, timoria. And it's not that either translator has made a mistake. The problem rather is that in a world in which the state does not have the monopoly on violence that we are used to, it's difficult to maintain a sharp distinction between punishment and revenge. Aristotle does in the rhetoric record a distinction between timoria, the word we've got here, and another word, colossus. Colossus is for the benefit of the person who undergoes it, timoria for the satisfaction of the agent who inflicts it. But it would be simplistic to claim that this amounts to a clean contrast between colossus as punishment and timoria as revenge. Colossus is chastisement, correction, restraint. It can be used of restraining the growth of trees. Timoria is revenge and retribution. The moment a retributive element becomes part of punishment, it is timoria, even if it is colossus as well. Timoria is the word for getting back at someone who's done me a wrong, whether the getting back is accomplished by my own knife or through the agency of the state. And it is timoria, not colossus, that the rhetoric associates with anger. Further confirmation of these claims can be found by looking ahead to text 9. Um, in the English translation, it's the left-hand column down the bottom. Um, this is a bunch of definitions which Seneca listed 
I think, precisely to make the point that they are not significantly different from each other. Uh, we have to go to Lactantius for this report on Seneca, because the relevant bit of Seneca's De Era is lost. So, uh, Lactantius reports... Uh, that the philosophers were ignorant of the nature of anger is plain from their definitions, which Seneca enumerated in the books which he composed on the subject of anger. Anger, he says, is the desire of avenging an, uh, an injury, the Latin there is orciscor, or, as Posidonius says, of the desire of punishing him, that's Pruneri, by whom you think that you've been unfairly injured. But Posidonius is another Stoic, so these are meant as two versions of essentially the same definition, the switch from Orchiscor to Pruneri having no significance. The next definition is probably Epicurean. Some have thus defined it. Anger is an incitement of the mind to injure him who either has committed an injury or has wished to do so. And then we finally get one of Aristotle's definitions, the definition of Aristotle, uh, this is the Dianima one, not the rhetoric one I quoted before, does not differ greatly from ours, that is, the Stoic one, for he says that anger is the desire of requiting pain. There's a remarkable unity, it seems to me, in ancient views of what anger is. In one way or another, anger is invariably described as the desire to get back at someone, someone else, for what they've done to you or yours. That someone else in Seneca is singular. All his definitions specify what it is for one individual to be angry with another. But the singulars can easily be made plural. The definitions apply perfectly well to groups of people. I've already quoted Seneca's claim that anger is the only passion that sometimes grips a whole people at once. Put this together with Cicero's pronouncement on a just war, and it seems fair to conclude that for the ancients, anger, the desire for vengeance or punishment, is a prime cause of war. And for everyone except the Stoics, this will include both good wars and bad. In a world in which a good war is thought to be the supreme manifestation of individual and national virtue, while a bad war, especially civil war, is a moral disaster, Anger is bound to be a topic of political as well as individual concern. Nevertheless, not only the definitions but most of the discussion about anger is focused on individuals. The social-political dimension comes in by way of the fact that so many of these individuals have power, imperium. One such is Cicero's brother Quintus in text 2. Let's go back a moment to text 2. Quintus is evidently an irascible character and needs to do something about it. He needs to do something about it, not just for the sake of his private life, but for the public life of a whole province. The point I would emphasize, the point that takes us back to the philosophical debate, is the medicine Cicero recommends for his brother. Quintus should consult not a priest or a psychoanalyst, but the many writings of the philosophers on the subject of anger. I shall not therefore take it upon myself to lay before you now the repeated utterances of the greatest philosophers on the subject of irascibility, and you can easily discover them in many writers. These writings, then, of the philosophers, are not just theoretical discussions of morality and human nature in the abstract manner that we nowadays associate with the word philosophy. Unlike most modern philosophy books, they serve a practical need at the station bookstore. They use the philosophical theory to help you bring your anger under control. 
The foundation of the philosophical theory, as we've already seen, is a definition of anger in terms of revenge, retribution, getting back at the one who did me wrong. This at once presents an obstacle to many modern readers. Anger is still with us, of course, but nowadays revenge is often thought to be an unworthy and morally dubious thing to aim at, at least in the public domain, in public discourse. It's not that we do not on occasion seek revenge, but I'm sure there are many more occasions on which one would admit to being angry with somebody, but would not admit to wanting vengeance or retribution from them. It may be that the White House is less squeamish about revenge than 10 Downing Street. I understand that at the time of the US invasion of Panama, President Bush went on television to vow vengeance on General Noriega, saying that he had offended the USA and the USA was not the sort of country you could treat that way. Achilles would have approved. <laughs> on that very same day, the press officers at 10 Downing Street were busy denying that Mrs. Thatcher had vowed vengeance on British banks for refusing to administer her student loan scheme. Vengeance came swift and sure in both cases, but perfidious Albion felt it necessary to disown its baser motives. <laughs> what better proof could you have that revenge is now thought, at least in public discourse, to be a base, dishonorable motive? Locke, at the end of the 17th century, is happy to define anger as, I quote, uneasiness or discomposure of the mind upon the receipt of any injury with a present purpose of revenge. But already this view may have sounded a somewhat old-fashioned, unsavory note, perhaps the result of too much reading of the second book of Aristotle's rhetoric. For within a few years, Bishop Butler's sermons of 1726 explained that revenge, though approved of under the honor system, false honor, Butler calls it, is morally wrong because to revenge yourself on someone is to return evil for evil. This is both contrary to the Christian injunction to love thy neighbor and forgive those who trespass against you, and contrary to natural reason, which points to the disastrous social consequences of the feuds that grow if the revenge motive is tolerated or admired. And this, I take it, remains the officially prevailing moral objection to revenge. Certainly, few of us today would be happy with the thought that every time we would get angry with someone, what we're experiencing is a desire to return evil for evil, wrong for wrong. It does not even seem right to say that we always want to inflict pain in return for the pain we've suffered. Then, what is it that we want when we are angry? The Oxford English Dictionary of 1888 can do, better, can do no better than define anger as a feeling against someone. <coughs> End of definition. How can so strong a feeling have so vague a definition? Has the word become vaguer in meaning than it used to be? Or has the feeling become less focused than it was in militarized societies which thought of revenge as an acceptable, indeed an honorable thing to aim for? What is it that one wants when one's angry with someone? Is there anything specific one wants when angry with someone? I'm going to plump boldly for the thesis that the feeling itself has changed. 
It is a familiar thought in philosophy that the emotions have a cognitive dimension. They are partly constituted as reactions to things conceived of as good and bad. If so, any large-scale shift in a society's values is likely to leave its mark, in the end, on the emotions of the individuals who grow up under the new system of values. The emotions we feel are, in part at least, the product of our social formation, and so will vary as and when that social formation does. It makes very good sense, it seems to me, to suppose that anger is, in some ways, different for us from what it was in times when what Butler calls false honour was not merely not false, but just about the most important object of a man's concern, where, once again, I use the masculine deliberately. The difference is not that revenge and retribution are never desired. Of course they're still desired, not only consciously, but also, often enough, unconsciously, in people who would deny that in their anger they wanted to get back at the other person. In the psyche, as in society, the past lives on in the present. The difference is simply the availability, the possibility in our world, of non-retributive anger. Listen to the opening lines of William Blake's poem, The Poison Tree. I was angry with my friend, I told my wrath, my wrath did end. I was angry with my foe, I told it not, my wrath did grow. We understand that without further explanation being needed. I don't think Achilles would have understood it at all, nor would Aristotle. But we can still see Blake's anger as a descendant of Aristotle's. We need not abandon the idea that both are forms of anger, the one an ancestor from which the other is a descendant. Look at text 7. the second bit I've underlined, where Aristotle remarks that vengeance brings anger to an end because it replaces pain by pleasure. That is, the pain of the insult is replaced by the satisfaction of revenge. You feel better as a result. I think that what Aristotle is describing is something one might call, by analogy with the fulfillment of a desire, the fulfillment of anger. The anger does not simply cease, as might happen if a fire broke out in the house and your mind became suddenly wholly occupied with saving the lives of yourself and your family. Rather, the anger is, in somewhat the same sense as a desire can be, satisfied, not just brought to an end. Perhaps then, what, perhaps then, if there is something I want when I'm angry with you, and I think that very often there is, what it is is that you should somehow make me feel better about your having done whatever it was that made me angry with you. Only now, in modern civilized conditions, satisfaction need not take the form of revenge or even of an apology, which is an obvious form of reparation and satisfaction. But a kiss might do instead, or just listening to me and taking in how I feel about what you did, as in Blake's poem. The important thing is that you do something that will make me feel better about what happened between us. 
I turn now to the debate between those who hold that anger is an ineradicable element in human nature, and a useful one when reason is in control, and the stoic view that anger is a monstrous disease that should be eliminated altogether. And first, the advocates of anger in reasonable and appropriate doses. To do away with anger, they say, borrowing a slogan from Plato's Republic, which you'll find in text six, but don't turn it up, I'm just going to use the phrase. To do away with anger would be to cut out the sinews of the soul. Aristotle is represented by Seneca as saying that anger is a spur to virtue. If the mind is robbed of it, it becomes defenseless and grows sluggish and indifferent to high endeavor. In modern metaphors, such a person is a softy has no guts, or spunk, or spirit, or drive, or whatever else it takes to get one going in a big way. The psychologist reported in the Times on that first page, who got 40,000 pounds to repeat Seneca's research on the causes and cure of anger, <laughs> seems to agree, uh, if you look at his third paragraph, uh, if you answered that you seldom or never get angry, you may be cool, calm, and long-lived, but you may also be totally devoid of ambition. Now these, let's stay with the ancients a while longer, these metaphors and sinews and spurs encapsulate an argument that's conveniently summarized by Cicero in text eight. Uh, He's giving the Aristotelian or peripatetic view against the Stoic view. So these Aristotelians are in favor of anger and they're arguing against the Stoics who are against anger and want to eradicate it altogether. What of the contention of the same peripatetics that these self-same disorders which we, that's the Stoics, think need extirpating are not only natural but also bestowed on us by nature for a useful end. This is the language they use, the Aristotelians. In the first place, they praise irascibility at great length. They name it the whetstone of bravery, yet another metaphor, and say that the assaults of angry men upon an enemy or disloyal citizen show greater vehemence, and that there's no force in the slight reasons of those, now this is now the stoic view of how you should think, there's no force in the slight reasons of those who think as follows. It is right to fight this battle. It is proper to contend for laws, for liberty, for country. Mm. Now these words, say the Aristotelians, have no meaning unless bravery breaks out in a blaze of anger. And they do not argue about warriors only. No stern commands in time of need are given, they think, without something of the keen edge of irascibility. Finally, they do not approve of an orator unless he uses the prickles of irascibility, not merely in bringing an accusation, but even in conducting a defense. And though the anger be not genuine, yet it should, they think, be feigned in language and gesture that the delivery of the orator may kindle the anger of the audience. In fine, they say they do not regard anyone who does not know how to be angry as a man, a ver. Even though Cicero denies that military considerations are all there is to it, he says, we're not just arguing about warriors, it does seem clear that they are the dominant factor. A society needs anger in its soldiers. They've got to be worked up to be willing and eager to do the things that society wants them to do. 
this social need is then reflected in the kind of an appearance an orator has to strike if he's to put himself over as a ver, a real man. The role model of the warrior hero like Achilles is still powerful in the legal and political debates of Republican Rome. But a less militaristic version of the argument can be derived from a remark of Aristotle's in text 7, to the effect, that's the first bit I underlined in text 7, to the effect that a man who doesn't feel angry on appropriate occasions is someone who doesn't stand up for himself. We could cut out the unsavoury metaphor of slavishness and report Aristotle as saying, in modern terms, that lack of anger indicates a lack of self-respect. Is the microphone going wrong? Can the gentleman who's in charge of that help? He just walked out of the room. Uh, if I stand back like this, is that better? Don't get angry. No, I won't get angry. We could... Okay? We could cut out the unsavoury metaphor of slavishness and report Aristotle as saying, in modern terms, that lack of anger indicates a lack of self-respect. And this, it seems to me, is quite a plausible view to take. One need not live by the honour code... What? No? Ah. How we do? a bit closer there. Now you still hear me? You can hear me in the back? Okay. Uh, let me recap where we were. Uh, I've just been through text 8, the argument in Cicero about uh, you can't be angry or at least pretend to be angry, you're not a real man. Uh, and I said that was inspired by the military model in a very militarized society as Rome was. But that we could derive a less militaristic version of the argument from a remark of Aristotle's in text 7 to the effect that a man who does not feel angry on appropriate occasions is someone who doesn't stand up for himself. We could cut out the unsavoury matter of slavishness that Aristotle uses and report Aristotle as saying, in modern terms, that lack of anger indicates a lack of self-respect. And this, it seems to me, is quite a plausible view to take.
One need not live by the honor code to value self-respect. What is more, it's a view that finds a striking degree of support in some of the Stoic arguments on the other side of the debate. One Stoic objection to anger is that it is an illusion to think you can control it and train it on right objects to the exclusion of wrong objects. It is inherently out of control. But another connected objection is that anger both reveals and fosters a wrong value set on self. Seneca's phrase is amor nostri nimius. You're angry because something has been done to you or yours. We saw that in Aristotle's definition in text one and in text seven. So, because something has been done to you or yours, you want to get back at the person who did it. Contrast this feeling with the more objective attitude of a judge deciding what punishment should be decreed for a crime. In the judge's thought, the motivating consideration is that a wrong has been done, not that a wrong has been done to him. It is this impersonal attitude that the Stoics recommend we should all try to achieve. That's what's happening in the middle of text 8, where Cicero speaks of the ratiunculi, the piddling little reasons. That's, of course, how the Aristotelian opponents of Stoicism characterize them. The piddling little reasons for which the Stoics would have us go into battle to defend our laws and liberty. It is right to fight this battle. It's proper to contend for laws for liberty and country. Absolutely impersonal. Some modern philosophers have put it forward as the very essence of a moral attitude that should take this impersonal, impartial form. For the Stoics, however, it was the form of the correct moral outlook, and they thought it extremely difficult to achieve. Recall how Aristotle in text one claimed that one is angry with a particular individual, Cleon, not with a man as such. Well, when a Stoic sage is attacked by Cleon, the sage will not get angry with Cleon for attacking him, but will think precisely that one man is attempting to do another an injury, that is something which ought to be stopped, and he himself, as it happens, is especially well-placed to stop it. So the right and reasonable thing for him to do is to try to stop it by knocking the fellow down. That would not be an easy attitude to achieve. But if we could achieve it, we would be able to answer the social case for anger. Our soldiers would act, when necessary, as the public executioner acts. According to Seneca, you do not need to get worked up to accomplish a massacre. I quote from Seneca again. Anger, I say, has this great fault. It refuses to be ruled. It is enraged against truth itself if this is shown to be contrary to its desire. Without cry and uproar and gestures that shake the whole body, it pursues those whom it has marked out, heaping upon them abuse and curses. Not thus does reason act. But if need should so require, reason silently and quietly wipes out whole families, root and branch, and households that are baneful to the state, it destroys together with wives and children. It tears down their very houses, leveling them to the ground, and exterminates the very names of the foes of liberty. All this it will do, but with no gnashing of the teeth, no wild tossing of the head, doing nothing that would be unseemly for a judge, 
note the model here, whose countenance should at no time be more calm and unmoved than when he's delivering a weighty sentence. What is the need, asks Hieronymus, this is one of the last writers on anger, what is the need, asks Hieronymus, of biting your own lips before you start to give a man a thrashing? What is to be gained by overturning the table, by dashing oneself against pillars, tearing the hair and smiting the thigh and breast? How mighty is the anger, think you, which turns back upon itself because it cannot be vented upon another as speedily as it desires. And so such men are seized by the bystanders and begged to become at peace with themselves. None of these things will he do who, being free from anger, imposes upon each one the punishment that he merits. He will often let a man go free, even after detecting his guilt. If regret for the act warrants fair hope, if he discerns that the sin does not issue from the inmost soul of the man, but, so to speak, is only skin deep, he will grant him impunity, seeing that it will injure neither the recipient nor the giver. Sometimes he will ban great crimes less ruthlessly than small ones, if these, in the one case, were committed not in cruelty, but in a moment of weakness, and in the other were instinct with secret, hidden, and long-practiced cunning. To two men guilty of the same offence, he will mete out different punishment, if one sinned through carelessness, while the other intended to be wicked. Always, in every case of punishment, he will keep before him the knowledge that one form is designed to make the wicked better, the other to remove them. In either case, he will look to the future, not to the past. For, as Plato says, a sensible person does not punish a man because he has sinned, but in order to keep him from sin. For while the past cannot be recalled, the future may be forestalled. And he will openly kill those whom he wishes to have serve as examples of the wickedness that is slow to yield. Not so much that they themselves may be destroyed, as that they may deter others from destruction. These are the things a man must weigh and consider. And you see how free he ought to be from all emotion when he proceeds to deal with a matter that requires the utmost caution, the use of power over life and death. Tis ill-trusting an angry man with a sword. I wonder how you react to that. I myself find it pretty chilling and feel moved to prefer Aristotle's view that self does matter and should be respected and stood up for. But that means, as the Stoics correctly saw, a self that is going to get worked up about injuries and slights, a self that is a good deal closer in spirit to Achilles than to the Stoic sage. But before leaving you to think about how we should evaluate the role and importance of anger today, I should like to bring into the discussion one more element which has contributed to our inheritance of ideas on the topic, and that is Christianity. The Homeric gods are as prone to anger and to vengeance for slights to their dignity and honour as Achilles. But the ancient philosophers are unanimous that the gods or God could not possibly experience anger. In the first place, man cannot injure any god, so they could have nothing to be angry with us about. In the second place, it would be incompatible with the goodness of the gods to think of them as desiring to hurt or harm. Such being the climate in ancient philosophy, Christian thinkers had a problem on their hands when they wanted to recommend to their contemporaries the wrathful God of the Old Testament and of the letters of St. Paul. One influential solution, advocated by St. Augustine, was to say that the Bible's talk of God's anger is metaphorical, not to be taken literally. An earlier solution, 
adopted by the Christian orator Lactantius around 314 AD, was to enter into debate with Seneca by making a distinction between just or righteous anger and unjust anger, and this is what he's doing in text 9. Back to text 9. After he's gone through the ancient definitions of anger enumerated by Seneca, he says down the very bottom of the left-hand column, this is the unjust anger, which is contained even in the dumb animals, but is to be restrained in man, lest he rush to some very great evil through rage. This cannot exist in God, Lactantius agrees, because he cannot be injured. But it is found in man inasmuch as he's frail, for the inflicting of injury inflames anguish, and anguish produces a desire for revenge. Where then, now comes Lactantius' alternative, where then is that just anger against offenders? But this is evidently not the desire of revenge inasmuch as no injury precedes. I do not speak of those who sin against the laws, for although a judge may be angry with these without incurring blame, let us however suppose that he ought to be of a sedate mind when he sentences the guilty to punishment because he is the executor of the laws, not of his own spirit or power. For so they wish it, i.e. the Stoics, who endeavour to extirpate anger. But I speak, this is for the, as the subject of just anger, I speak of those in particular who are in our power or potestas under our authority as slaves, children, wives and students. For when we see these offend, we are incited to restrain them. And so we, in these cases we arise not because we've been injured, but to exact punishment so that discipline may be preserved, morals may be corrected, and licentiousness be suppressed. This is just anger, and as it is necessary in man for the correction of wickednesses, so manifestly is it necessary in God, from whom an example comes to man. What Lactantius calls just anger is being moved to correct faults because they are faults, sins, or wrongs. You might think this was indistinguishable from the chilling Stoic attitude of putting wrongs to right, the difference being simply that the Stoics wouldn't call it anger, whereas Lactantius does. But that would be a mistake, I think, as a closer look at text 9 will show. For Lactantius purports to distinguish his righteous anger from the sedate, impersonal, judicial attitude recommended by his Stoic opponents. Righteous anger is an emotion that a judge may feel without incurring blame when handing down his sentence, but he need not. Whereas according to Lactantius, it's an emotion you ought to feel towards the wrongdoing of those over whom you exercise moral authority, children, wives, slaves, students, in the way that God does over us all. I want to suggest that what Lactantius is describing is a kind of moral indignation. Indignation is something I can feel about a person X doing wrong to Y, or about a person X doing a wrong that affects neither me nor anyone else at all. Indignation can thus meet Lactantius' requirement that it is not incited by an injury to me or mine, and therefore does not aim at the satisfaction of revenge or at any other kind of satisfaction for me. It's like the difference between taking pleasure in the fact that some wonderful thing has been achieved and taking 
pride in that same achievement, which requires some direct or indirect connection with myself. But before accepting this as a satisfactory new via media between the Stoics in their opponent and their opponents in the debate about anger, we should ask whether indignation is indeed a kind of anger, as Lactantius would have us believe, or something importantly different from anger. This brings me back to Bishop Butler in the early 18th century. In his sermons upon resentment and upon forgiveness of injuries, Butler condemns revenge, as I've already mentioned, because it renders evil for evil, and he claims that human beings have in their nature a tendency to respond with resentment, indignation, or anger. He deliberately makes no distinction between these. When injury or moral wrong is committed, the object of this feeling being to prevent or remedy injury and injustice for the common good. One responds with a greater degree of this feeling, he says, when the injury or wrong is to oneself or one's own, but it's still a feeling about a wrong being done, in contrast to Aristotelian anger, which is a feeling about wrong or insult to me. Thus Butler, like Lactantius, wants to eliminate the reference to self from anger. But it seems to me that the pre-Christian philosophers were right. To eliminate that concern with self is precisely to eliminate anger. Whether this would be a good thing in individuals or in whole societies, as the Stoics contend, or a bad thing, as the Aristotelians and everyone else suppose, is a further question I leave for you to discuss. It's a further question again whether it's possible to eliminate anger or jealousy or any other emotion. That's a question I leave for tomorrow's lecture when I discuss some other Hellenistic philosophers' projects for a radical reform of the human psyche. I will simply end by remarking that had I been living in Eastern Europe in recent years, I think I would feel it was not enough that there should be a judicial review and appropriate punishments for the crimes of the past. It would not be enough to put injuries and injustices to right and then design a better system for the future. In short, it would not be enough to respond to a sense of indignation that we in the West can feel too. I should want, if I'd been actually living there, if not revenge, then at least some form of satisfaction from the villains, something to make me feel better about what they did to me and mine. And the question is, would that feeling be wrong? Thank you. Thank you, Miles, for again for a wonderfully uh, provocative and uh, uh, stimulating lecture. Uh, and uh, we will simply now uh, await eagerly the third instalment tomorrow. The third instalment entitled Tranquility and Happiness uh, will, if my memory serves me, be in the Townsend Centre. No. No? No, it didn't. In the Harrison Library of, of Moses Hall at four, correct? Yes, yes. Moses Hall on campus at four o'clock for tranquility and happiness. Thank you so much. <laughs>
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.